Hello, and welcome to the April 2015 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a moment to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. All right, first up, for the first time in many months, we are leading off with a non-marriage equality segment, but legislative developments in several states with ramifications for the LGBT community really dominated the month of March. Can you tell us what happened, Art? Well, the most significant, the one that we decided to lead the issue with, was Utah, and uh, a bit of a surprise. We had really sort of stalled out on getting new state laws banning sexual orientation discrimination. Most of the progress over the past few years has been getting amendments to existing laws to add gender identity. We've gotten several of those, and uh, the efforts are continuing in New York to try to do that. But it's been since 2009, uh, the last time that we uh, had a new sexual orientation law in Delaware. And so the new Utah law, uh, the measure that was signed into law on March 12th by Utah Governor Gary Herbert, was a breakthrough of sorts. But as I concluded my article in Law Notes about it, it, it comes with an asterisk. That is, it's a new sexual orientation, non-discrimination law. It also includes gender identity, but it doesn't include public accommodations, which is a big omission, especially with all the battles going on now about marriage service providers and the arguments in many states that they need new laws to protect uh, businesses from having to provide services for same-sex marriages when the owners of the business have religious objections. But we'll get more to that in a moment when we talk about Indiana and Arkansas. But in Utah, what the measure does is it adds sexual orientation and gender identity to the state's anti-discrimination statute, which applies to employment, and it adds sexual orientation and gender identity to their Fair Housing Act. But at the same time, it broadens existing exemptions for religious organizations and businesses affiliated with religious organizations, which is a big deal in Utah where the Mormon church has a finger in a lot of pies. Uh, they, they have a lot of businesses that might potentially claim this exemption. Uh, so uh, the law, it's got some holes in it. In addition, uh, not only did they pass this uh, non-discrimination bill, SB 296, they passed another bill, SB 297, which reinforces protection for workers who want to advocate against marriage equality or gay rights in the workplace without penalty. Uh, and it's uncertain how broad this exemption will be once it gets uh, tested in uh, the administrative agency in the courts. Uh, the, another important thing about this is that there were some local ordinances in Utah uh, protecting people from sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination. And to the extent that those things are covered now by the state law, they're preempted, uh, which may be a good thing, may be a bad thing. Uh, it seems that the remedies uh, were more limited under the local ordinances, as is usually the case. Uh, so uh, the uh, preemptive law might actually provide more relief in cases to which it applies. So we've got another state to add. Now we're up to 22 states on sexual orientation, uh, a few uh, states that cover sexual orientation but not gender identity, so that number is a, a bit smaller. Uh, but it's nice to finally have added a new state to the column. Uh, the interesting thing 
shifting now to the other legislative developments in uh, in Indiana and Arkansas is that the way in which the public and especially businesses and the media and uh, politicians from other states reacted to the Religious Freedom Restoration Acts that were uh, enacted in uh, Indiana and then uh, pushed back by the governor in Arkansas uh, has shown that there are other places where we may, with really strong effort, be able to get state non-discrimination laws. And given the political tilt of Congress, where we're not going to make any real progress in the short-term future on a national anti-discrimination law, the states are where we have to concentrate our efforts. So people are frequently asking, if we get, as we expect to, a marriage equality decision from the Supreme Court in June, what's next? I would say one of the things that's next and should be high on our agenda is a real focus on adding more states with these protections. Uh, there have been some developments under Title VII of the Federal Civil Rights Act that suggest that there may be uh, more protection for transgender people under that law, but attempts to expand that law uh, in its interpretation of sex discrimination to protect LGBT people from discrimination have not been as successful. Uh, so turning to uh, Indiana and Arkansas, and most of the focus was on Indiana at first, uh, the legislature in Indiana passed what you might call a Religious Freedom Restoration Act on steroids. Uh, and the background on this, of course, goes back to the early 1990s when the U.S. Supreme Court, in a case called Employment Division of Oregon versus Smith, held that under the First Amendment, the Free Exercise Clause does not give people a defense, uh, or rather a sword to use, uh, to avoid compliance with general state laws. And that was a case involving uh, two employees uh, who were discharged by their employer for flunking a drug test because they were Native Americans who used peyote in a religious ceremony, and they wanted to claim a First Exe Amendment exemption when they applied for unemployment benefits and were turned down. Uh, the unemployment department said, well, we have a state law against the use of this substance, and you can't claim a religious exemption. Uh, the Supreme Court upheld that position, that they couldn't claim a religious exemption, uh, surprising a lot of people because many people had assumed that if a state law substantially burdened free exercise of religion, the state would have to show that it had some compelling interest for doing that under First Amendment doctrine. The Supreme Court rejected that view of its prior cases and said that uh, as long as the state has a legitimate law of general application, people have no individual religious exemption from complying with it. This really annoyed a lot of people in Congress who disagreed with the decision. And uh, so Congress, by overwhelming majorities in both houses, passed the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which said when the federal government or a state government uh, applies a law of general application in a way that substantially burdens free exercise of religion, they have to have a compelling interest. And the law has to be the least restrictive alternative to achieve that interest. The Supreme Court subsequently said that Congress did not have authority to overrule its First Amendment decisions with respect to the states. I mean, it could impose a restriction on itself, on the federal government. Congress could say, as a matter of federal government policy, we are not going to uh, apply general federal laws in a way that will substantially burden religion without a compelling justification, but they couldn't mandate that for the states. So that left it up to the states to decide whether they wanted to pass Religious Freedom Restoration Acts. 
and many of them did uh, in the 1990s in the immediate aftermath of the Supreme Court's cutback on the federal law. Uh, and then there was a lull. And it's sort of surprising when you see the states that didn't pass them, uh, states like Indiana, for example. Uh, and the issue seemed to go away for a while. And the issue has reemerged now very strongly in the wake of the marriage equality uh, litigation. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, states are being required to allow same-sex couples to marry. And same-sex couples who marry, some of them just elope, some of them just go to City Hall. Some of them want to have a big celebration, just like their straight brothers and sisters. And they want to uh, hire a wedding photographer, and they want to get a fancy cake, and they want flowers, and they want to rent a, a catering hall. And all of a sudden, they're going to businesses, uh, some of whom, many of whom are in the wedding business, tend to be small businesses, uh, local businesses, uh, not necessarily big corporations, and some of them being operated by people who have religious objections who don't want to be part of it. And so we've had these clashes around the country. Uh, you know, you have the wedding cake clash in, in uh, one state, and you have the florist in another state, and you have the wedding photographer. That's the most famous one in New Mexico. Uh, and state legislators all of a sudden feel from some of their constituents a pressure to protect them from having to participate in these ceremonies. And it seems pretty clear from the sponsors of this new round of Religious Freedom Restoration Acts that that's what they're really aiming at. They want to protect small businesses with religious objections from having to be complicit in same-sex marriages. Uh, so the Indiana statute was about the broadest that you can imagine in terms of protecting free exercise of religion from having to comply with general state laws. Uh, it uh, defined very broadly the concept of a burden on uh, free exercise of religion, including uh, someone who think, thinks that complying may subsequently impose a burden or something of that sort. Uh, and uh, it also authorized uh, this to be raised as a defense in private litigation, not just in cases where the government is bringing an enforcement action. So there was a lot of criticism of the law. Uh, Governor Mike Pence signed it into law saying as far as he was concerned, it was not about discrimination. It was about protecting free exercise of religion. Uh, but it became pretty clear very quickly that he and the legislative leaders in Indiana had misread the public temper on this uh, because there was a storm of protest. In some cases, it involved uh, businesses that talked about pulling activities out of Indiana or delaying projects that were in prospect for Indiana. Uh, there was talk about conventions being canceled, governors from other states putting restrictions on travel to Indiana by state employees for uh, business purposes. Uh, and, of course, the, uh, the blogosphere went wild. The media went wild. Local newspapers in Indiana went wild. A major newspaper devoted its entire front page to a large print statement, this must be fixed. Right. And everyone focused on the fix. And the fix that was ultimately agreed upon by Governor Pence and the Republican legislative leaders in negotiation with some of the business critics uh, was to amend their Religious Freedom Restoration Act to say that the statute could not be used as a defense to a charge of discrimination uh, in violation of state law or sexual orientation or gender identity. They had to add that because Indiana state law doesn't cover sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, and th immediately there was further criticism saying, well, why not? 
Governor Pence, should businesses in Indiana be able to discriminate? Uh, on an interview, nationally televised interview on ABC, George Stephanopoulos tried to put that question to Governor Pence, and he just wouldn't give him a straight answer. Right. Uh, pardon me for saying straight answer. <laughs> Actually, he was giving straight answers yes. in that sense, but he wasn't answering the question. All right. Uh, but I think it's a question now that has to be faced because it was clear from the public reaction to this law uh, and more to the idea of the law than to its actual application that there is a strong majority in this country in favor of banning discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, it cuts across political lines. Uh, Republicans under the age of 35, a majority, are in favor of banning such discrimination. Uh, so as generational change comes to the Republican Party, they may be less reflexively opposed to such legislation, overwhelming support for it in the Democratic Party. Uh, and we saw the same thing play out on a smaller scale in, in Arkansas because Arkansas, the legislature, also passed a very similar bill. And the governor said, I'm not going to sign this. He said to the legislature, cut it back to something like the federal bill because the federal law is relatively uncontroversial at this point, although the Hoppy Lobby decision has made it a bit more controversial uh, when the court interpreted the protection uh, for persons, free exercise religion, to extend to corporations. Uh, but the Arkansas legislature backed down and they passed a revised version that was much more like the federal law, which the governor then signed. Not that that's a panacea, because Arkansas doesn't ban sexual orientation discrimination either. So the next big thing, of course, is to push for laws banning sexual orientation discrimination on a state level. In many states, we have lots of municipal and county laws. There were about a dozen in Indiana, which would have been preempted by this Religious Freedom Restoration Act to the extent there was a, a difference. But now this amendment seems to save the day, most likely. Although in Arkansas, previously, they did Arkansas ago, they, preempt all their local They passed a law saying that localities cannot cover uh, prohibited grounds that aren't part of the state law. And so although there are a handful of, of municipalities in Arkansas that want to ban sexual orientation discrimination, they can't. Right. All right. Uh, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll change gears and discuss the latest marriage equality developments. We are back discussing what happened the past month on the marriage equality front. Where do we stand at this point, Art? Well, we picked up another state, uh, provisionally at least, and that's Nebraska. We had a decision in Nebraska on March 2 from senior U.S. District Judge Joseph F. Batillon, who, uh, in fact, was uh, the same district judge who long ago <laughs> had struck down their uh, anti-gay marriage amendment on uh, on grounds that it uh, it violated the political rights of the gay community in Nebraska, but he was overturned by the Eighth Circuit in that case. But the marriage equality case came before him, and in Waters versus Ricketts, he was ruling on a motion for a preliminary injunction to order the state to allow marriage uh, in advance of trial. And he said the plaintiffs have all the arguments here. Uh, the state was really pushing the old Baker versus Nelson argument. The argument that because the Supreme Court found no substantial federal question back in 1972 being presented by a Minnesota marriage equality case, therefore all lower federal courts lack any authority to rule on the merits on marriage equality, that it's not a substantial federal question. Well, 
as far as the judge was concerned in Nebraska, that was nonsense. Uh, and in fact, now that the Supreme Court has granted cert on uh, the marriage cases from the Sixth Circuit, it's clear that it's nonsense because uh, the granting of cert signifies that the court thinks there's a substantial federal question, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and in addition, Justice Thomas uh, echoed that as well in dissenting from the refusal of the court to stay the Alabama marriage decision. He said people are going to interpret that as uh, are stating what the outcome is going to be on marriage equality, and this is an important constitutional question that shouldn't be decided by indirection. Uh, so uh, clearly, uh, I think Judge Battione's got that one right. Uh, he said, no, we can get to the merits on this. And on a motion for preliminary injunction, the burden on the plaintiff is not to show that they are definitely going to win on the merits. It's going to show that they're likely to win on the merits. And he said, all I have to do is count up the precedents. He says, four circuit courts of appeals have ruled in favor of marriage equality in several dozen district courts. And the Supreme Court allowed marriage equality decisions to go into effect in three circuits. And in the Ninth Circuit, subsequently, uh, after the Supreme Court had denied cert in the other three circuits, the Ninth Circuit, uh, the court refused to stay marriage equality rulings within the Ninth Circuit after the Ninth Circuit ruled in favor of marriage equality. So uh, he said the probability that the plaintiffs are going to win this case is overwhelming. Right? Even if they don't win it in the Eighth Circuit, when the, the state appeals, they're going to win it in the Supreme Court most likely. Uh, so uh, looking at the various criteria for issuing preliminary injunction, he said they meet all the criteria, the merits, uh, they're likely to win on uh, balance of harms. The harm is greater in not allowing them to marry than in requiring the state to issue licenses. It's in the public interest to do so. So he granted the preliminary injunction. But being in the Eighth Circuit, a circuit which so far has not allowed any marriage equality decisions to go into effect, he stayed his decision briefly to give the state an opportunity to seek a more uh, lasting stay from the Eighth Circuit, and they received such a stay on March 5th. But they decided there's no reason to leave this case languishing because they already have an oral argument scheduled on May 12th for the other cases from the Eighth Circuit, so they just added this, which means that all of a sudden the uh, counsel on both sides in the case had to come up with their briefs very quickly, their appellate briefs, uh, very short briefing schedule. So on May 12th, the Eighth Circuit will be hearing arguments in cases from several states. Uh, there are some states in the Eighth Circuit that have marriage equality, but that's as a result of legislation or uh, state uh, court decisions. So uh, we'll be having an argument on May 12th in the Eighth Circuit. Whether they'll get around to issuing a decision before the Supreme Court rules in the Sixth Circuit case is debatable. Mm -hmm. They'd have to put a real rush on. But then we see that the Seventh Circuit moved very quickly from oral argument to opinion and to cert denied within a matter of weeks. So if a court wants to do that, they can do that. If they want to shy away and not have to decide the case, they can do that. Uh, so that's uh, the the major ruling we've had. Uh, we had another interesting development in one of the other marriage equality cases in Puerto Rico. Uh, in Puerto Rico, we have an unusual decision, uh, uh, situation of a federal district judge who said, I'm bound by Baker versus Nelson. I can't rule on the merits. But then an extensive dicta, if I were to rule on the merits, I'd rule against the plaintiffs. So we had an unusual loss in a marriage equality case in Puerto Rico. Uh, decisions from the district courts in Puerto Rico are appealable to the First Circuit. Lambda Legal, representing the plaintiffs, appealed to the First Circuit. 
And that put the Solicitor General of Puerto Rico on the spot. How are we going to respond to this appeal? Uh, we won before the district judge on the Baker versus Nelson argument. But can we make that argument now with a straight face to the First Circuit? Because what has happened in the meantime? The Supreme Court has granted cert in the Sixth mm-hmm. Circuit case. So we have sort of the same analysis by the Solicitor General of Puerto Rico that we had by the federal district judge in Nebraska. Baker versus Nelson, a non-starter argument before the First Circuit now. Even though the First Circuit accepted the Baker versus Nelson argument several years ago in the context of challenges to DOMA. Uh, they said uh, that we have to distinguish it, that the challenge to DOMA is not a challenge for the right to marry. It's, it's about federal recognition of marriages authorized by the state. So we can distinguish Baker and say it doesn't preclude us. But that means that at the time they thought otherwise Baker might be might stand in the way of a merits ruling. So uh, the Solicitor General of Puerto Rico sucked it up and filed a uh, statement with the court saying, uh, we agree that Baker versus Nelson doesn't preclude a, a merits ruling here. And by the way, on the merits, we disagree with the federal district judge. And so they issued a statement asking the court to reverse the district judge decision and send it back, uh, presumably, for consistent uh, proceedings. In this case, the district judge was not ruling on a summary judgment motion. He was ruling on a motion to dismiss. And therefore, he granted a motion to dismiss. We have no ruling on the merits, ultimately, by the district court. So it would seem that the First Circuit could even just send the case back to the district court without even holding a hearing, I would think. If, if the parties agree that the district court wrongly dismissed the case, I don't see why the First Circuit should have to hold a hearing. But maybe they will. Uh, we haven't had a, a word out of them yet. This, this development is relatively recent mm-hmm. from Puerto Rico. Then there's our return to the Alabama marriage circus, uh, which I think, I think when we recorded the, uh, the podcast for March, it was far enough into the month that we had already talked about the Supreme Court's decision mm-hmm. there. The uh, uh, members of the Alabama Supreme Court had issued an order telling all of the uh, probate judges in the counties that they should stop issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. The one exception they made, uh, at least tentatively, was Judge Davis in Mobile County because he was the named defendant in the federal cases there in Alabama, and he was under a court order by the federal district court to issue marriage licenses. But the court said uh, to, uh, to Judge Davis, they said, please get back to us right away with your position on how Judge Grenard's order to you uh, restricts or impedes your ability to comply with our order. And after fussing around about getting an extension of time from them because they gave him only two days, he asked for more time. Uh, ultimately, he, uh, he submitted his uh, position and the state p- submitted their position. And the court issued a new decision later in the month in which they said, as far as we can see, the federal court's order only required Judge Davis to issue marriage licenses to the plaintiffs in that case, not to issue marriage licenses in general. Uh, and after all, a federal district judge only has authority to issue relief to the plaintiffs in the case, and the plaintiffs in the case were two same-sex couples who wanted to get married. Uh, but change was brewing in the federal case uh, because uh, counsel for the plaintiffs filed a motion with the court asking to file a new amended complaint that would expand the case into a class action on behalf of all same-sex couples who want to get married in Alabama against all the probate judges. And she agreed to allow them to amend the complaint, but said, 
she would uh, require more briefing from the parties on the question of class certification. So as we begin the month of April, uh, the new complaint is on file, but the court has not yet rendered a ruling on whether they're going to certify a class. But it's hard to see why they wouldn't. Uh, if, if the district judge wants to move forward and get by this Alabama Supreme Court decision, which basically was pretty nasty to her. <laughs> I mean, it was disparaging her ruling, you know, taking it apart and saying that it doesn't bind us. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, she, she may have her dander up on this, and uh, we may see some motion. But you could tell people, look, just be patient. In a few months, the Supreme Court's going to resolve all this. But how confident can we be? Right. Uh, there was another development. Uh, the U.S. Department of Labor had tried to fix the problem with the Family and Medical Leave Act. Uh, people will recall that back in the summer of 2013, after the Supreme Court decided U.S. v. Windsor, the Obama administration took the position, well, now we have to recognize legally married same-sex couples, and we will do that to the extent it is possible to do that under existing law, absent, of course, Section 3 of DOMA, which had been struck down by the court. Uh, so they basically did, for purposes of tax law and a lot of other laws, they just unilaterally extended recognition to same-sex marriages. But there was uh, there were a few instances where there were statutes that would have to be amended or challenged as unconstitutional in the courts or regulations that would have to be changed. And the Labor Department uh, looked at their various statutes that they administer, and one of them is the Family and Medical Leave Act, which allows employees of covered employers to have up to 12 weeks a year once they've worked there for at least a year of unpaid family or medical leave. And family leave includes leave to take care of a sick spouse uh, or to deal with family issues involving the children uh, of a couple. And uh, the regulations that were adopted back in the 1990s after the Family and Medical Leave Act was passed said that determining whether someone is married will depend on the law of the state where they reside. So there was a regulation there. And uh, although the Obama administration could take the position that in states that recognize the marriages, we will recognize the marriages for purpose of the FMLA, we can't do that in states that don't recognize the marriage under the current regulation. So they published a proposed new regulation to change the definition in the regulation on uh, which marriages will be recognized. They received public comments. They published a final rule in the Federal Register, and it was all set to go into effect on March 27th. But just before it was to go into effect, the Attorney General of Texas filed a lawsuit in federal district court claiming that the Obama administration did not have the authority by, by regulation to require the state of Texas to recognize same-sex marriages because of, get this, Article 2, Section 2 of DOMA. Now, everyone thought after Windsor, DOMA is a dead letter, but the only part of DOMA that was struck down in the Windsor case in 2013 was Section 3, the federal definition of marriage. Section 2, which says that states are not required to recognize same-sex marriages from other jurisdictions, that was still there. That hadn't been dealt with by the court in the Windsor case. And... Uh, so far, it has not been declared unconstitutional. Uh, so the federal district judge in Texas said, well, under Section 2 of DOMA, I agree that the state of Texas does not have to recognize same-sex couples. 
uh, in an opinion that lacks clarity. It's, it's, it's unclear uh, from the order of the judge. He, he said to the Labor Department, you shall stay this new regulation uh, pending a decision on the merits because this was a, uh, a request for pretrial relief. Uh, several other states had joined as co-plaintiffs after Texas filed their complaint. So does this apply nationwide to the application of this regulation to everybody, public sector and private sector? Does it just apply to the state governments, which are excused by Section 2 of DOMA from recognizing same-sex couples? Does that also excuse private sector employers in those states from recognizing them? It was a, a bit of confusion because the regulation was to go into effect on March 27th. So the Justice Department has filed a motion with the court asking for a hearing on clarification and stating their understanding that this would just apply to the four plaintiff states and it would just apply to uh, state employees, but that may not be what the court's understanding is. So we're in a period now of uncertainty. Uh, the judge uh, rebuffed the idea of just lifting the stay. Uh, so we're not sure uh, where that case is going to go. Stay tuned for further developments. Uh, finally, of course, we should say something about the Supreme Court uh, because people listening to this uh, will be interested in hearing what's going to happen. So the calendar is on April 28th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. The Supreme Court will hear uh, two and a half hours of arguments in uh, the marriage equality cases. Uh, they will not be webcast live. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court absolutely refuses to have live webcast of their opinions. They've only done it once. That was in Bush v. Uh, Bush v. Gore back in 2000. I think they've regretted it ever since. Uh, so uh, they have promised, the clerk of the court has posted a notice promising that they will post an audio recording as well as a link to a transcript by 2 p.m. on the 28th. So, and of course, uh, people who really want to follow along, SCOTUS blog does live blogging of Supreme Court arguments, and I'm sure there'll be other live blogging going on. I hate to even say this out loud, but I'm going to try to get in myself, so I might have uh, next month a in-person uh, account to share with our <laughs> listeners to knock on wood, uh, actually getting in. I think everyone and their sister is going to try to get in. But Yeah, I'm, I'm going to sit in my office, in, in the comfort of my office, and, and what I advise people to do is as soon as it becomes available, print out the transcript and then follow the transcript while you're listening to the audio because it's sometimes difficult to figure out who's talking. And at least on the transcript, they'll tell you who's talking. And sometimes uh, it's difficult to pick up exactly what they're saying, and the transcript will be a big help with that. Uh, and so by, by later on the 28th, people will, I think, have a reasonably good idea of the way the wind is blowing. Usually... Uh, you can tell a lot by the kinds of questions the justices are asking. Uh, sometimes they're playing devil's advocate. You know, you have to pay close attention to who's asking which questions. Uh, and uh, this is probably the most challenging sort of appellate argument for a lawyer because you've got nine judges up there, eight of whom are active questioners, one of whom never asks questions, but who knows, might, given the historic nature of the occasion, mm -hmm. ask a question. That's Justice Thomas. Right. Uh, but... Some of the uh, justices are known for being extremely active questioners. Justice Scalia is a very active questioner. Justice Sotomayor has emerged as a very active questioner, so it should be very lively. Uh, there will be four attorneys arguing for the parties. Uh, two uh, attorneys have been retained to represent the four states that are involved. 
One is a former Solicitor General of Michigan, John Bursch, and the other is an Associate Solicitor General of Tennessee, Joseph Whalen. We should mention, too, I saw yesterday that Mr. Bursch has been Had forced. to withdraw from his firm. Yes, yeah, so the... His firm didn't want to be seen as taking a side on this issue, yeah. uh, although uh, the article I saw suggested that if you go to their website, you see they have a very active gay community family law practice, among other things. Uh, so uh, so Mr. Bursch will be arguing on uh, the question of whether same-sex couples have a right to marry under the 14th Amendment, which he will oppose, and uh, Joseph Whalen will argue on the recognition question, uh, which he will oppose recognition. On uh, the side of the plaintiffs in these cases, who are the petitioners, because this is an appeal from an adverse ruling by the Sixth Circuit, uh, there was a sort of a bake-off competition. That is, all the people who were interested in arguing went to a big moot court competition that was staged by the attorneys from the parties, and by consensus they agreed. And we should say before that, they tried to see if they could have split up the argument. Yeah, they wanted to, for more people to be able to argue, but this court really wanted only one person to argue on each question. Yeah. Uh, so they decided question one will be argued by Mary Bonato, who is the Civil Rights Project Director at Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders in Boston. And this might seem puzzling to people. You know, why is an attorney from Boston arguing this? Uh, it's because... GLAD and every one of the national or regional gay legal organizations is involved with one or more of these cases, uh, not necessarily in bringing them in the first place, but in being brought in when the case is reached an appellate level because of their expertise. So although uh, Mary Bonato has not actually argued in any of the four states in the marriage equality cases, she is recognized as one of the leading advocates on the issue. Because, among other things, she argued in the Massachusetts Supreme Court in 2003 in the case that was the first win in the state Supreme Court, uh, an outright win for marriage equality. Uh, and she has been very much involved throughout New England. And as a result of her work, New England is solidly marriage equality, the first region in the country to be so. Uh, so she was uh, the winner of the moot court competition and was designated to argue question one. Question two will be argued by Douglas Hallward-Drymeyer, who is the head of the Supreme Court litigation practice at Ropes and Gray, and who has uh, 15 Supreme Court arguments under his belt. Uh, and he, uh, according to uh, a profile that I read of him, is not gay himself, uh, but has been very involved, uh, was involved in one of the cases at the appellate level. The Tennessee case. The Tennessee case. Yeah. Uh, he, was, he was called immediately when the case went up on appeal in Tennessee uh, because he was a, uh, a law school classmate and friend of one of the people who was very involved in the case from one of the gay organizations, and they knew that he was a crack appellate lawyer. They figured, you know, bring in someone who's really, really strong. And he won the moot court to argue the second question, which is the marriage recognition question, which will probably be decided by default based on what happens with the right to marry question. Uh, there's been some speculation that the court might split the baby, as it were, and give us recognition without the right to marry, which is strange, and I think unlikely. But at any rate, we have two excellent uh, advocates there, and then uh, the uh, Solicitor General will take 15 minutes of the petitioner's arguments. Uh, so Don Verrilli, who also argued uh, in the Windsor case, will be arguing in this case, presenting the administration's position which is in favor of marriage equality. So that's all going to go down April 28th, and then the court can issue a decision any time after that. Since it is unlikely to be an unanimous decision, 
that means time for uh, someone to draft a majority opinion and then for someone to draft or one or more dissenting opinions to be drafted, which means this really kicks it back to late in the term. Also, the Supreme Court has a tendency to hold the major cases till the last week of the term, which will be in June. So we would expect this this decision to come out in June, probably just a few days before uh, the Christopher Street Liberation Day celebrations in New York. And this year, depending how it comes out, they may be extraordinary celebrations. The way they were the year we passed marriage equality in New York the week before. Uh, so uh, the, that last week in June is turning out to be a real big gay celebration week. Yeah. Um, all right. Very interesting stuff. We'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll discuss an important New Jersey Supreme Court ruling from last month that could affect a very high-profile LGBT hate crime conviction. We are back discussing the case of State v. Pomianic. hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, this is a New Jersey Supreme Court decision from March 17th. Um, I wrote about it for this month's issue, so I'll do uh, my best to summarize it here. Uh, uh, basically, the Supreme Court of New Jersey unanimously struck down a subsection of the state's bias intimidation statute as violating the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, the federal Constitution. The um, subsection struck down was most famously used in 2012 to convict the roommate of gay Rutgers freshman Tyler Clementi, Darun Ravi, uh, following Clementi's tragic suicide after discovering his roommate had used a webcam, turned it on from outside the room to watch a sexual encounter between Clementi and another man. Uh, the only statute, <clears throat> this is actually the only statute in the country before this, it was the only statute in the country that authorizes a biased crime conviction based on the victim's perception uh, that the defendant committed the offense with the purpose to intimidate. Uh, regardless of whether the defendant actually had the purpose to intimidate. Um, now, the case that was actually before the Supreme Court of New Jersey involved racially motivated harassment. Uh, basically, the story was um, a group of guys who worked for a local parks and rec department uh, in New Jersey um, were sort of messing around in the warehouse uh, late one night. Uh, there was an African-American employee who was sort of tricked into walking into a steel cage uh, which they then locked him in. Um, and then uh, the defendant uh, in the case uh, allegedly made a racially uh, uh, sensitive comment of, involving about a monkey in a cage and a banana. Um, so he was uh, charged and convicted of uh, bias intimidation and official misconduct. Now, on appeal... The appellate division, which is the intermediate appellate court in New Jersey, reversed uh, these convictions uh, via the First Amendment, uh, saying that the statute was unconstitutional as a First Amendment uh, violation. Uh, but to fix that, they added an intent, a mens rea requirement into the statute uh, and sent it back to the trial court to retry uh, the defendant with an intent requirement. Uh, in, in, but before that would happen, uh, the Supreme Court of New Jersey took the case uh, and looked at it themselves. Um, now, again, as I mentioned, uh, the, what the Supreme Court focused on was really the uniqueness of the New Jersey statute and how uh, it penalizes a defendant even if he has no motive to discriminate, so long as the victim reasonably believes he acted with a discriminatory motive. 
and there is a doctrine uh, under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment that um, deals with vague criminal statutes. Um, and basically, if, if it's unclear to someone that they would be breaking the law, that makes, uh, that makes it unconstitutional under this vagueness doctrine. Um, the idea is that people should know when their conduct crosses uh, the line into criminal conduct. Um, and they really talked about, um, I, I understood the rationale. I don't know that all of it totally, uh, totally uh, works. I mean, they kept saying that it's sort of impossible for someone to know uh, what a victim's experience might be. And I, I sort of disagree with that in thinking that I think some, you know, if you, if you use certain words to an African-American, I think most people would know that that's going to offend an African-American. Um, but I think they're, but, you know... But that involves stereotypical thinking about what will offend. Uh, you know, I can see the court saying that it's not a good idea to have a criminal statute without a mens rea requirement. Right. And then saying, and the appellate division can't just invent one if the statute doesn't have one. Right. That that's judicial legislating. And, and you know, we go pretty far in interpretation to try to save the constitutionality of statutes. Yeah. But that, in the in the view of the Supreme Court, crossed the line by yeah. the appellate division. Uh, but the impact for the Ravi case right. is what got a lot of the media attention, right? Right. And now, uh, so uh, Darun Ravi was convicted under the same uh, subsection of uh, the state bias intimidation statute. And now uh, many people believe uh, his, his conviction is now at risk. Now, he already, he was only sentenced to 30 days and ultimately only did 20 days. Um, so he's already technically received the punishment. There's no way to go back in time and take that away. But, you know, it's, it, it would well, be... There, there may be some probation aspects that still right. linger. But the point is he was convicted on a multi-count uh, complaint. Yeah. And uh, the judge actually at the trial expressed his own doubts yeah. about the constitutionality of this provision. So the judge did not enhance the sentence even though the jury convicted on this ground. Right. So it's, it's possible that this would just involve some sort of revision of, uh, of the trial court's order and not necessarily require a new trial. However, uh, according to newspaper reports, some of the jurors afterwards said that the evidence that the judge submitted about the impact of this on Ravi was some of the most effective testimony they heard. Yeah. And so it's possible that the argument could be made that the whole jury consideration was tainted by allowing that evidence, which was only relevant on this point. Because uh, on the point of whether the defendant is guilty, the question isn't what was the impact. The question is what uh, what was his state of mind, right. what was his intent. And these were the do? this was the evidence about how uh, Tyler reacted when he found out what uh, his roommate had done. So it really was about his right. internal reaction to. Yeah. So it's it's possible that a court could uh, vacate the conviction, and that would throw it to the uh, the district attorney to decide whether to retry him or not. Yeah. Uh, I should mention, I actually sat with the executive director of the Tyler Clemente Foundation last week at, a, at an event, and he had told me that the lawyers lawyers that have spoken with him and the family have said they don't think they're going to lose the whole conviction, but that's, uh, you know, it's, speculative. it's all speculative. The case is pending before the New Jersey Appellate Division, I yep. believe, yep. so we'll have to see how that one turns out. Yeah. All right, we'll take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment, we'll close out with an interesting federal court decision about whether Grindr owes a duty of care to users of the gay hookup app.
All right, we're back to wrap up with our of note segment for this edition. Art, it turns out Grinder is not liable if you have a sexual encounter with someone underage that you meet on the app. Can you tell us why? Well, it seems that Congress, in its infinite wisdom, has decided that it would really impede the development of the Internet as an effective communications device if Internet service providers uh, and people who uh, operate interactive websites, things of that sort, were to be potentially liable for injuries that people incur using their websites. Uh, and uh, they've given them a very broad immunity. So this case that was uh, decided by the Federal District Court of New Jersey, uh, Judge Jerome B. Samantle, on March 13th, involved a fellow who was being prosecuted by the state of New Jersey for having sex with an underage guy. And this was all arranged through Grinder. And so he ran, runs into federal court and sues Grinder, uh, claiming that they have a duty of care. They're supposedly adopting an adult service here, and they should only allow adults on, and you should be able to rely on the fact that anyone you meet for a hookup on Grinder is an adult and not an underage teenage boy. Now, the boy was only 13 years old at the time, and, and uh, part of the reaction to uh, media coverage of this case was, just a minute, he couldn't tell that the boy was underage when they got together. Uh, and actually, the whole thing had been set up by a friend of his. Uh, the plaintiff in this case, William Saponaro, isn't even a member of Grindr, and it says he's never used the app. It's just this friend of his who uses Grindr contacted him, said, this guy has contacted me, and he's into doing a group thing. You want to set it up? And so he set it up, and uh, it turned out that the, the guy was a minor. And now he's trying to get it back at Grinder to recover the cost of his defense in the criminal case and everything like that. The criminal case evidently is still pending, or at least at the time uh, the court wrote the decision was still pending. So we don't know what the outcome of that is. But uh, it's, it's a cautionary note for you guys out there who uh, may be using Grinder, And for anyone who's using the Internet, there are limits to the extent to which you may be able to hold them liable if you suffer some kind of economic loss or criminal prosecution as a result of something happening on an online uh, service. All right. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of the GAL or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow the gal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in May. <laughs>